we, uh, this brings to the close this five-week session, and I see so many faces that have been here every week. I'm, I'm really pleased with that, especially because I, I think and trust and hope and pray that this will give you uh, tools for, uh, number one, uh, doing some important uh, personal work that that's uh, I think valuable for each of us to do. And number two, I hope for you'd have conversations within your families that will be uh, valuable and instrumental to you and and, and important for your families. This, uh, as we said at the outset, uh, this is a topic that uh, that we we just avoid for some reason in our society. Um, and as uh, as the as uh, Dr. Leach uh, pointed out, uh, the mortality rate in our country is 100%. <laughs> so so uh, it's, it's, uh, this is not avoidable. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased tonight uh, to ask uh, Jim Pratt to introduce our speaker, John Fox. Um, I want to say that I really appreciate you coming and offering us your time. Um, while he while he's a, a lawyer, he and as as other ones, he's not here looking for business. He's here out of the goodness of his heart to share information that be valuable to us. Now, if some of you decide you want to go his way, that's another story. But that's not the purpose for him being here, and I'm very very appreciative of that. Um, I want to remind those who are in the Disciple Bible Study program that next week is Halloween night and we will resume our program on November the 7th. So we'll have one more week before we come back because uh, to, to risk the goblins on Halloween night just doesn't seem to be a prudent thing to do. So Jim, if you would come and share a word. Uh, Jim, as I pointed out, and Martha Hansen. And, uh, and Nedra Oyen have worked with me in preparing this, and I'm, I'm grateful to, for them and their work. Oh, one other thing. Uh, thank you to uh, the uh, Open Hearts class and Martha's Bible st uh, class for providing our meal tonight. Thank you so much. Well, tonight, uh, this is our final meeting in the series that we're doing. And tonight we're going to talk about what I think is the greatest gift that you can give your family, and that is to put your affairs in order, your legal and your financial affairs. And to talk to us tonight and help us understand how to do that, we have John Fox. He is a practicing attorney here in Fort Bend County. He is board certified in estate planning and probate law, and he's been helping people like you and me do this for at least 25 years or more. So uh, without further ado, I'll turn it over to John. Uh, thank you, Jim. Can you hear me okay? Good, okay. Well, I'll, I'll try, not to, try not to yell. In the back? No? Let's see. Is it on? It, it's on? Okay, all right. Okay, can you hear me get in the back now? Okay. Good. <laughs> oh, John, can I mention one other thing? Sure. 
Uh, we have a lot of people here this evening and a lot of material to cover. Uh, John does not mind answering questions as we go along, but please keep your questions general in nature. If you have some situation that is unique to yourself, uh, maybe you could talk to John after we're finished, but the questions that you have should be the kind that would benefit everyone. Thank you. Good, and don't, and don't stump the speaker. That's the other rule. I <laughs> forgot that one. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to have comments for a, a mixed group, although I think most of the folks in here are middle-aged or above, a little bit, and they're in that generation where you're dealing with kids and divorces and parents and so forth all at the same time. So it's one of those things where it's a very trying time for anyone, but I'll, I'll try to make my comments general and, you know, again, everyone has specific situations that are important to them, and it, it really just becomes important to have the right people that you're working with to help you through that. But in generally speaking, I, uh, Jim passed out the outline, and I did this for two reasons. First of all, so that I don't repeat myself too much. And uh, secondly, so you'll see the order that I've at least picked things out to go through. So if you have a really good point or question you want to make, and you see it's on item number four, and you can bear with me and give me a chance to get there and then we can see if we can discuss it or not. But I did want to thank the church for the opportunity to be here. I was telling Jim I don't do these much anymore. He used to do quite a few of them, but I, I don't now and I like to, to pick, th pick areas and groups that I think are interested and uh, it's a field that they have, would like to have more information about, not necessarily on a high level, but just enough to make sure they have the basics down. The State Bar of Texas, the federal government, uh, they don't put out anything regarding planning in general, regardless of whether it has anything to do with taxes. They don't have a budget for it. The State Bar has a little pamphlet that we attorneys can purchase and put in our waiting room for people to pick up and walk out with, but they don't do anything for uh, board-certified lawyers to help them stand out from the rest of the group. Uh, here's a... Uh, horrifying statistic for you. There's a over 100,000 licensed lawyers in Texas. And, and out of that 100,000, there's about 450 that are board certified in this particular field. Uh, when we moved our office out here 11 years ago, there was not another board certified attorney with an office in all of Fort Bend County with all the people we have out here. Now there's five or six. Some have you know more experience than the other. But the reason I say that, regardless of whether you need family law, personal injury, corporate, immigration. There are about 14 different fields that the state bar certifies in. And in order to be certified, you have to take two and a half times as many CLE hours a year. You have to sit, have to recertify every five years through the Supreme Court. Uh, it's, it, and have no grievances, lawsuits, disciplinary actions against you. So <clears throat> there's not enough said about it, but if you need a particular part of the law, to be on your side, you really ought to try to find people who have been in it and don't uh, don't do a traffic ticket in the morning and an international oil and gas cartel in the afternoon and do do a will right after lunch. You know, it kind of comes out like that. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start on this. And I guess one thing that I think is quite misleading is to equate assets with planning. Uh, they don't bear any relationship to one another for the most part. It's just a different kind of plan. You have a, some of the dif most difficult cases to work with are people who are, are quite young. 
they're just married, they've got uh, a small amount of equity in their house, they've got a couple of big term life insurance policies and just got started on their 401k plan. Well, that couple has as many interesting and difficult things to deal with as someone who's worth $50 million. Now the $50 million has more tax issues, but the people issues are the things that actually drive estate planning and people actually doing something with their estates. It's not, it's not the dollars. If you took away the estate tax, there wouldn't be any less need for people to have a solid plan in place. So there's, there's no real equation between the amount of dollars and, and whether or not you need estate planning for one thing. The second thing, I have clients who are very proud to tell me that they have a will. I say, well, good. Uh, when was that will done? Well, we didn't have any kids at the time, and our youngest is now in medical school and so on and so forth. And it's, it's like saying, uh, I'm going to get a physical when I'm 22, and that's going to be it. And from then on, I'm just going to keep, keep the one I had. I wish we could, but keep the one I had. So th having a will is not the same as actually having one that fits your time in life. And the differences between 20-somethings and 70-somethings are, are quite different in a lot of ways. But uh, it, that's one of the saddest things that I see our clients who and, not, and non clients who don't uh, keep up to date with their documents. So it, it is an ongoing process, as I mentioned there in that very first item. And the, and the whole idea is to organize your affairs in a way that is the most efficient for you while you're living and right where you are right now. And then in the event of your death or incapacity, that as it goes on to your family in the most efficient manner. You don't have to have a, a large estate to have a big problem and to have things set up incorrectly. So it should be it should be ongoing and you should review it. We recommend every five years unless there's some major change in your life, you know, in the meantime. If you don't have a will, what happens? Well, up until about 12 years ago, <coughs> if you had a, this same young couple I was speaking of, if one of them died without a will, their share of the estate went to their children who, being a young couple, were typically minors. So that mom or dad, whoever survived the, the car crash, is disappointed somewhat to know that they're minor kids who now are being managed by the Fort Bend County Court Office, County Clerk's Office in particular, uh, own half the house and own half of the retirement plan and own half of this and half of that. The law changed about 12 or 14 years ago to say that between husband and wife, if they are the common parents of the children, then the, the surviving spouse inherits from the one who died. If there's second marriage, that's a problem, um, which is becoming you know, very routine nowadays for a lot of people. But regardless of, of what kind of a plan you have, it's better than what the government has set out for you under the, the intestacy laws. Every state has them. When a person dies without a will, then, then it's go to the statute and see who inherits, and it's usually second cousin twice removed and that you don't even know can end up inheriting a part of your estate. So any will is better than no will. I, I say that a little bit reservedly, but that's, uh, that's fairly true. So you want to stay out of the intestacy laws. They don't deal with minor children. They don't deal with aged people. It doesn't deal with uh, people who have special needs or anything else. It's just straight by the laws of consanguinity, so to speak, in, in Texas. Well, when you have a plan, what, is, what does that mean? 
And actually, the two elements of most, most plans are what you have and who your beneficiaries are. Now, that might sound elementary, but I've listed some assets there in, in 2A on the outline a little bit. And we all think of ca cash investments, life insurance, retirement plans, businesses, uh, inheritances you might not think of. A lot of times uh, people, people will have their estate plan set up to give their children or grandchildren considerable power to rearrange how their estate goes when the child dies. So that even though you have protected yourself, your spouse, pass it on to your kids, and many plans allow for the family to stay in control of the assets for multiple generations without it ever coming out and being a part of our state tax system. We need to talk just a minute about the community, community property system that we have in Texas. There are eight states that have community property. The community property system is quite different from Philadelphia or uh, other cities, New York City, not, not the city, but the state. People move here many times from a common law jurisdiction, like one of those original 13 colonies and, and all but eight of the other states. And in those states, someone could move here from Pennsylvania, and let's say we take a practicing heart surgeon, and his wife's been at home and enjoying time with the kids and playing tennis and so forth, and they move to Texas. And, you know, MD brings his assets into the state. Those are all his separate property. So what happens if he decides he would like to have one of his med techs for a girlfriend as opposed to his wife? And he, he gets a divorce. There's no protection in, in Texas for that. So w we have the community property system. People who inherit and have money that they've inherited from their family, that stays their separate property. Uh, in most instances, the, the progeny of that separate property, the growth in the value and so forth, remains their separate property. But income on separate property is community. So if someone has a, a, the a nice fortune of inheriting a lot of oil and gas property from family and they have those coming out, then there's a good chance that a part of those distributions every year is community property, which means if they decide not to continue the marriage, then that's subject to division by the court based on equity. The courts in Texas do not, cannot, will not, have not, and never will be able to divide up a person's separate property in a divorce decree. So if it's separate property, it stays separate property. If it's maintained correctly, if you have a, a prenuptial agreement or it's in trust and set up in a way to retain its separate characteristic. But we're going to talk a little bit more in a few, few minutes about community and separate property in an income tax context. But essentially, that's a big deal here in Texas because if people want to continue keeping assets separate, I have a client now who has a $200,000 uh, account that she inherited from her mother. And she inherited along with that account one of these about don't ever let <laughs> Fred get his hands on this money. This is for my grandkids and my great-grandkids and so forth. So her plan is developed around making sure that that goes into a trust that's going to be protected strictly for the blood descendants. Some people, it's a significantly larger amount of money they're concerned about. But the thing to bear in mind is the Texas law requires the executor of your will to sort through this if you haven't done it. So if you have stuff from one marriage, inheritance, and money you've acquired together, it's all out there, and someone needs to figure it out when a person dies 
because if you don't figure out who owns what, you don't know what goes through that person's will. So the executor is stuck with that job. If the clients haven't done it while they're living, then the executor has to do it when a parent dies, a grandparent dies, and you're named executor, and you have to figure out what goes to the surviving spouse, if there is one, and what goes under the deceased person's will, or trust, or whatever instrument that particular family had. So all the property that is in your estate, does anyone have a guess on what food group, let's say out of what I've talked about, represents the largest part of most people's estate in Texas from any of these things I've mentioned? You can, you, you can throw out a dot-com company that maybe the guy started is worth billions of dollars. A house or real estate? Anybody else? Stocks? There you go, retirement. Yep, we're, we're, we're blessed with oil here in Texas, and the oil companies make um, most of the rest of the country, except maybe for Detroit, look like pikers when it comes to handing out benefits to people that work for a career with them. And that, that, is, that makes up the bulk of more than, uh, of 85 to 90% of the estates I see, the retirement plan is a major asset. Is there anyone in here who had wills drawn, trust drawn, planning, where the attorney basically said, now we need to look at all of your beneficiary designations, they all need to be changed and modified so it passes under your estate plan. I won't ask for a show of hands because that's sometimes a little bit embarrassing. But if the major part of your estate is made up of retirement plans, why doesn't anyone give any attention to it? That's where most plans fall into trouble, especially with, with younger, younger couples. Who's the, who's the beneficiary of 401k? Easy, it's my spouse. Who's the contingent beneficiary? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's usually what I get, and that's usually what most people know about. So the, the details in integrating your plan is integrating your assets to pass through your plan you have a beautifully drafted document and you have a bunch of accounts that say pay, pay this on death to this child and pay this on death to that child and divide this one up between my two brothers and so on and so forth. W you know, you've, you've basically spent money preparing documents that don't do anything. And we have you know, folks who call and come in and say, you know, I, uh, my husband or wife just died a couple weeks ago. I need to talk about their estate administration. We've already seen our broker. Brokers get the first call. Already seen our broker, and he's changed everything over. So we, were, we really don't even know why we're coming to see you, but he said, now that you're done with me, you need to go see your lawyer. So we're sitting there saying, well, you know, you've just ruined everything, <laughs> truthfully, uh, because your documents are all set up to do this, and you've got your son who's got a gambling problem, your daughter's in a bad marriage, and all this stuff is just, you know, payable directly to them. There's no supervision over it. And, um, you know, all this work you spent and time and money that you put into it, it's, it's worthless. So integrating your asset, if you think, if you remember anything from tonight, if you have something in place, make sure that all of your assets are going to go there. Um, I guess it's a, a natural reaction for people to say, oh, well, I'm avoiding probate this way, so I talked to my broker. Oh, you can avoid probate by doing this and that and this and that. Next thing you know, well, you've avoided an estate plan is what you've done. But... There's no one out there that's going to tell you that. Everyone has their own 
axe to grind. If you're talking to your insurance person or your investment advisor or whatever, they want to get you off the books, get you cleared up, get your insurance claimed, and go on down the road. And they think they're doing the right thing, but that's not their field. So uh, knowing, <coughs> knowing what your assets are is very important to come into what you, what you want to do with it. The beneficiary part is not only who you want to benefit, but how you want to benefit them. And you, you, if you have a family with more than one child in it or grandchild, if you have two, then you definitely, or three, you definitely have some that are different than the others when it comes to what their, their needs are. So providing for family members, um, elderly parents under your documents. We have a number of clients uh, now that have uh, elderly parents who have been through a lot of uh, expense, medical and otherwise, and they don't have much in the way of assets. So they say, well, our estate's large enough. Why don't we set up a trust for our three remaining parents? So that in the event we die, our kids get most of it. Some of it goes into this uh, grandma and grandpa account that takes care of, of them till they're all gone, and it comes back to the kids. So w working your beneficiaries out in your documents is really the key thing when it comes to uh, developing a plan and looking beyond just your spouse or maybe even the children to what, what comes after that. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, and Jim had mentioned, as a matter of fact, if you can pronounce this, I will challenge you to do that, but there's a new, it's called the Texas Revised Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act, uh, TRIFADA. <laughs> and, and essentially, <laughs> uh, things are moving in the right direction. All the investment houses, you've probably gotten all kinds of announcements and pronouncements from places where you have your assets of Fidelity or the various brokerage firms. They all have their little safes that you can put stuff in so no one can get in there without a digital key. All, that, all that's good stuff. The law is usually a little bit behind getting around to that, so this particular act covers all of that. Who gets your Facebook account? <laughs> Who can go into your deleted emails? <laughs> Uh, that kind of stuff. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting uh, what's coming about now. So this, this act essentially treats, uh, treats digital assets, uh, websites, Facebook, you know, all these different things as intangibles that you can pass on to people under your documents. It's a really new thing. I, we don't even have specific provisions in our office. But there are, because it passes as a part of the residue, and usually the residue is where most of the estate's going anyway, and the family's happy for their major beneficiaries to be able to be the one to check out their Facebook page. Um, or maybe not. But, but that's something that's new now. Bitcoin, I don't know, I won't ask for a raise of hands of who owns Bitcoins, but uh, believe it or not, someone wrote an article on it, a legal article, that basically was saying that, that Bitcoin is not is not recognized as going anywhere from the person who owned it. So they're saying if Fred owns a thousand Bitcoin and he dies, they just, psst, they're gone. <laughs> they don't have any way to transmit those because you have your one little key that no one knows anything about and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're saying, sorry, but your million dollars in Bitcoin on today's market is just, it's in the air somewhere, but we can't help you there. They won't divulge information about accounts. So the executor goes around and tries to get some information. They say, well, go get us a court order. Uh, Facebook and Google have forced the folks to go in and get a court order to 
to access someone's account that they have there with them. So those are, those are kind of the new generation of issues. All you can do is just do the best you can with your documents and hope that the law comes around to letting your executor, your trustee, or if you're living, the power of attorney agent, be able to, one way or the other, get access to that information. Um, many clients will put, now that, now that the brokerage houses are offering these little, little uh, safes, so to speak, in the clouds, are putting their stuff there. But with people being hacked the way they're being hacked now, I feel the same way as I did when I signed up for LifeLock. Well, now, wait a minute. I'm giving them all my personal information and putting it in one place that somebody might be able to hack into, which, you know, just happened to however many, you know, million people. So it's a developing part of the law. Uh, it's, it's one where it's, it's likely going to continue to be in the hands of the executor and the trustee. But, but this is just a, a baby version of the law now, and it, it has a long way to go as laws change. When they change, it takes years for the legal system and the courts to actually you know, get in stride with it. Who do you, who do you involve in your estate plan? Uh, and again, a lot of that depends on what you have that you're dealing with. But the issue about having children involved is, is really difficult. I've been practicing 40 years now and things have moved in the right direction but it's sort of like watching global warming. Uh, I mean these icebergs don't move from over there to over there very quickly but I've seen a lot of movement in families having more open dialogue with their children, with their grandchildren, with their siblings perhaps or parents or whatever about what they're doing with their assets. And it used to be that everything was to the chest and uh, some wouldn't even talk to their spouse about what they wanted to do. But it's gotten more open. But I, I, there's no right and wrong there. I don't ever lecture people to say, you've got to tell your kids you're worth $10 million. Uh, it, it's, it might, one of them might say, great, I can be, you know, write the great American novel now, and the other one might want to use it to, to solve pneumonia or something, but uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but what you, what you do try, you need to try to avoid is turning your estate into a scavenger hunt. And that's a horrible example, but it comes to mind when I meet with a family who's lost someone, it's literally like a scavenger hunt. Well, where did dad keep his so-and-so? Well, he used to have it in the gun safe, and then it moved over to the water, and then we got flooded, and and they don't, don't know the first place to start. And when people complain about the difficulties in administering an estate, it's usually because no one set it up correctly for the kids who are coming along, and they don't really have any idea what to do. And thirdly, they go to the wrong person, doesn't know what they're doing, and then it, it gets worse. But uh, that's a, a really critical thing when it comes to the complexity of these documents nowadays. When we draw wills, we do a flowchart diagram and things that clients can hand to their kids and say, here it is on two pages, this is where everything goes. doesn't really have dollar amounts on there, but it, it could. But I, enc I encourage clients to at least make sure that they are including their kids, assuming they're adults, uh, including their kids in part of the planning because, to put it bluntly, your planning is more about them than you. 
And I've had so many clients who just focus just on the two of them, lose sight of the fact that they need to talk to their children about, here's, here's what I'm putting in your trust, words. Um, I'm going to let you do this or let you do that. Uh, if you want to involve your husband in your affairs, I'm letting you do that. Or if not, I'm not letting you do that. But uh, to discuss it with them, you don't want children to find out for the first time when they're talking to uh, the attorney if they're appointed executor and they're understanding exactly what's happening. Um, for, for two reasons. First of all, they get angry and they start fighting with each other. The second part of it is if they don't know why you've done what you've done, they don't care about it. If you've meticulously set up your estate plan to pass into protective trust for them, and they don't know that, they don't know why you felt that was important, then as soon as you're gone, they've got the truck backed up to the teller's window and just throw it all in there. I don't really want a trust. I don't want this, I don't want that. Do I have to have one? Well, that's what your parents' will says. Well, they're not here. <laughs> I'm just gonna go just cash that IRA in right now and have a good time. So th the more they know about what you're trying to accomplish, the more likely they are to go along with it. If they don't have any clue and this is the first time they've ever known what's happening here, then that's kind of a recipe for an unhappy family sometime in the future. So there's no right or wrong to it, but if, if, if kids are, are decent, they've been raised right and they're good family members and so forth, then it's sometimes good to, to talk to them about what you're doing so that they know what uh, possibly could come along. They don't have to know, fill in the blank behind the dollar sign as far as what's coming, but at least they know those sorts of things. Charities, such as your church and other institutions. We have clients who want to make gifts to their church and or to the Heart Association or MD Anderson or whatever. There are, are many, many opportunities through charitable institutions that have what they basically call off-the-shelf programs. If you say that you want to have a program to, to eradicate this tiny little disease that doesn't have a good name and doesn't have any drugs but needs money to, to, to um, um, become successful, then there's probably an institution you'd want to support that has one of those already there. So you don't have to have a foundation or anything else. You just want it paid into the box over there in somebody's office that has that name on it. And that falls right in with the program that's already ongoing, people have contributed to, and so forth. You don't have to just write a check to American Heart or uh, TB Association or something. You can make it much more specific without going into a lot of, of detail. If you, if you believe in tithing or have a strong, uh, strong inclination to be charitably inclined, there are, lots, there are other things you can do. One thing that we do quite frequently, we don't we don't want to see people having to change their wills very often. They need to review them. Hopefully they don't have to change them. If I have someone knocking on my door a year after they sign their documents, I'll think I really did a terrible job if they're wanting to change their mind so quickly because it means we didn't give it enough thought on the front end. So we ha use a, a paragraph occasionally where a client says, you know, I, we're, we're kind of uh, charitable uh, jitterbugs, you know, we go from here to there and we like this charity for a while and then the new person comes in there and we don't like them anymore and go to a different one. Or someone's in the newspaper because someone in that organization was caught stealing and they think that's not run well, whatever the reason. You can actually have your document say, we want to give X percent, Y dollars or whatever to the 
charities selected by our executor trustee based upon our most current giving records so that the executor goes to your tax return, sees who your charitable donations were, and has an idea then of what you'd like to support. And then they can take and distribute that 10% that way rather than you're having to go down and change your will or your trust document you know, every few years if you change your charitable inclination. So there are things like that that go into trying to, to um, make sure that you have your bases covered but in a way that's flexible and doesn't create a real burden for someone under the documents. When you're, when you're working on your estate plan, your, your CPA, your financial advisors, your insurance person, retirement person and so forth, all those people need to be brought in. The only thing that needs to be you need to be careful about is the reason for having them there is not to tell you what to put in your estate plan. The reason for having them there is to give you investment advice, give you assistance to get all the changes made to your retirement, uh, IRA beneficiaries, 401ks, and so forth, to do administrative work that dovetails into your plan. And many times there's not a real clear bright line there that, that gets respected. It, it, it requires a team approach, but it requires everyone doing their own thing. And uh, you don't want your lawyer giving investment advice. You don't want your CPA giving investment advice. You don't want your CPA giving you legal advice. So if everybody's doing their job, what happens is it costs you less. Because if you, if you have good people working for you, and I'm talking to a client about a charitable remainder trust, and I'll say, you know, you've got a wonderful accounting firm. Why don't you ask them to run you some numbers on this? Let, let them do that. Many times they do that as a soft service. Your investment people will do things for you, and especially when it comes to changing assets and beneficiary designations. So we try to get, I don't want us to sound, or lawyers to sound lazy, but we just want to do our job. And if clients have good representation in other fields, then we want to make sure we just kind of let, let them do their thing. That's what they're there for. So the, the group would be your accounting, accounting people, financial, retirement, life insurance, so forth, and your, and your attorney. And the, and the charities, if you have a charity in mind, then they can sometimes be involved as well. Okay, so you've got the right team together, you've been motivated uh, by a trip to the doctor or just the passage of time or something. And, and now you, you go in to see your attorney and, and what kind of documents are you gonna expect him to be sticking in front of you that don't look very, very uh, easy to understand. The, the biggest choice in today, especially for most of this group that's in middle-aged or more, and that is looking at the type plan you have. I'm not talking about what kind of trusts and do you allow son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws to get into your business and so on and so forth. But the basic wrapper that you put around your plan, that's gonna be only one of two things. It's gonna be a will or it's gonna be a living trust. And a living trust is not as recognizable of a term in Texas because we have a pretty, a pretty straightforward probate system. Uh, if you took a will and probated it in Fort Bend County, whatever it cost, it's gonna be four times that if you drove across over into uh, New Mexico, go to California, Florida, any of the 13 original colonies, many, many times more expensive to administer a will. But a will, 
a will is not a will until it goes to, in this case, Fort Bend County Court. Uh, Fort Bend County Court is running about nine weeks behind now. So if I have a client who dies on a Monday, they race right in with the will. We e-file it with the clerk's office the next day. It's going to be eight weeks before that uh, hearing is held. Well, the day a person draws their last breath, nothing goes forward until the will is offered for probate. So if the court's eight weeks behind, then there's eight weeks to go by there where if the bankers are doing their job, they've frozen all those accounts that are set up correctly. There may be one account we usually recommend clients keep as a survivorship so the survivor has twenty or $30,000 to pay bills. But most everything is going to be closed down until the court hearing is had, the letters testimony are issued to the person who's executor, and they take that piece of paper and they can go do anything they want. They just hand it to the banker, the broker, whoever it is, real estate person, and they do whatever you tell them to do. But until you get that piece of paper, you're pretty much dead in the water, literally, on the, on the financial stuff. Then you go through the court process, which um, is getting more laborious every year. I, I like to refer to it as, as chicken peck work. You know, it's just you could have a smart chicken to sit there and do what they need you to do in court. All, all of these uh, letters that are sent out, certified mail, everything certified mail nowadays. You e-file a will and an application with Fort Bend County Clerk, and then you turn around. You have to send the original over by courier. Uh, okay, well, I guess that does something, but I don't know what. So it's it's really just turning out there, there's more and more visibility uh, with wills and estate administrations now. You're, you're having to you're having to show more and more things down the road than you used to 30 or 40 years ago. So there's high visibility, which is one is a good thing in one respect, but it's costly. There's a lot of just paperwork that doesn't do anything for the family. It just goes, you just jump through a bunch of court hoops. Most of my clients, at least, more of them are probably accepting living, living trust now than before, primarily because we're all older, and, and I personally have that. <laughs> but when you have a living trust, you actually create your plan while you're living, transfer your assets in there so that you don't own anything in your own name. So when you pass, your family comes in, there's a book there, as all of your accounts are in the name of your trust. Only thing that happens is the institution looks and sees who's the next trustee in line, kids, grandkids, whoever, and then they take over. There's no eight-week delay. It's a matter of a day. You just have to prove that the person died and the successor trustees are in business. So for, for people who are senior citizens and above who have uh, concerns about health issues, nowadays it's more dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, those kinds of things. A living trust is, is far above a will when it comes to efficiency and, and, and um, keeping things out of the public eye. You don't file anything at all. You don't have to run a notice in the newspapers that tells people if, if, they, if you owe them money, they can come and send their notice in and so forth. So I feel that for p most of the people in this room, or at least half the people in this room, that a living trusts are more efficient and more suited to senior citizens than our wills. So I have a lot of clients coming in to review, review documents they've done years ago and decide to go to a living trust as opposed to a will. So if you're, if you're thinking about redoing your documents, just make sure whoever you talk to talks to you about, about both of those. Uh, 
There are camps in Houston that make you feel like you're a complete blithering moron if you don't have a living trust because wills are for idiots and people who want the judges to take all their money and it's scare tactics. <coughs> and and I, I think that's a, a good plan sold in the wrong way as opposed to being able to stand on its own. So I think, you know, you, you need to decide which of those you want to do. You can't draft one, turn around, convert it into the other. They're totally different documents, totally different plans, uh, totally different pieces of paper that go into it. But the first decision you would need to make with your counsel is what's best for you, a living trust or a will. Nothing wrong with wills, but as we age, I think uh, most of my clients, when they come in for a, a redo, uh, when they're older, typically like that better. The, the big standout is uh, the other documents that go along with an estate plan, let me pick one out, talk about it first, and that's the financial power of attorney. The financial powers of attorney are coming under fire like you wouldn't believe. And those of you who may be in the, the financial industry one place or another, uh, in the last month I've had a national, one of the top three brokerage houses, a, a nephew walks in, presents uncle's power of attorney to the person there and says, I want to have you issue my uncle's required minimum distribution check to him. I'm his agent. I'm authorized to take this check made out to him. Here's the power of attorney. It says, I'm the power of attorney. It says it's good today. And um, they said, okay. So they gave him the check and he went his way. They pick up the phone. They called Adult Protective Services out here in Fort Bend County. They said, hey, you need to go check into John Boy over here, Uncle Fred's uh, nephew. Because he just came in here and took a $20,000 check. And we think he was going to buy a car with it. So sure enough, you know, briefcase toting folks show up from the, from the county office and they, they, they froze the account. So you've got to prove to us that you're not spending that money on you. So, um, when the state legislature and State Bar of Texas came up with a power of attorney, one that we're using up until September the 1st, now it's different, they uh, basically, the banks, financial institutions all agreed that if somebody walks in with on its face, duly signed, notarized power of attorney, we've got to take it. We, we can't say, no, it's Thursday, we don't do those on Thursday. Or, oh, that's two years old, you, you need a new one. Well, my uncle has Alzheimer's. That's why he did these before he had Alzheimer's. You can't sign another one. Oh, gee, we're real sorry. But we're not going to take that one. The new power of attorney that became effective September 1st, it, do, it does a couple of major things, and I'm just going to go right off of it, and, and we can come back to it or not. But the new power of attorney form essentially requires the person who's named in there to take proof even though he's got the power of attorney that has his name on it, uh, it's not good enough. The institution can demand that he provide proof of his agency. So there's a two-page form now that says, I, Fred, I'm a duly appointed agent of George, uh, da, 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 and take that in along with the power of attorney that's notarized and so on and so forth. If the bank doesn't like it, they can say we're not going to take it, and then there's recourse now given to the agents to actually go into court to make them take the power of attorney if they don't want it. So, um, 
we're really on the, on the brink on this one, and I don't know where it's all going to go. But the reason I brought it up in conjunction with living trust is if you have a living trust, you're not involved with that. You could care less if they like your power of attorney because you, you don't need the power of attorney for that. Once your assets are, are transferred into your trust, then it's the trustees calling the shots. And they're not giving any um, difficulties for trustees managing trusts. So we'll see where the new law goes. I don't, um, there's some cases that say that an agent under a power of attorney was liable for not acting. So if you were named uh, uh, primary agent under your grandparents or parents' power of attorney and you didn't do something and you should have done something, at least in the eyes of someone, then they have a cause of action against you. Well, they named you as their agent, their power of attorney holder. Why didn't you do something? Why did you let this uh, you know, black sheep sister over here steal all of her money? That was a real-life case. The, the, this law that just changed basically said that you have to be acting. I don't know what that means. They haven't had any lawsuits to figure out what that means. So I, it's not good. Powers, powers of, this is not a, a golden age for powers of attorney right now. Okay, the, that's, that's the one document. You have a medical power of attorney that deals with all of your medical issues. You have another document that goes along with that called a living will, advanced directive, directive to physicians, uh, you name it, Red Rocket, uh, all the hospitals have some name for it. But the medical power of attorney only comes into play in an instance where you, the patient, have not already set your course of attention with your doctor. So if you've decided uh, no amputations, no this, no that, no heart massage, no what, if you've already decided those things with your doctor, then even though you've named your spouse or one of your kids as your medical power, they don't have any right to use that. Because you have to not be able to make your own decision and not have already told your doctors what you want to have done when you get to that point. So only at that time does the medical power become effective. So they turn to daughter or son and say, okay, your mom needs X or Y. Which one do you want us to do? The medical power is absolutely what's necessary up to and until one of three things, death. But the other two are terminal illness, which is a, is a state definition, believe it or not, and it says that if no doctor attending this particular patient can offer even the tiniest bit of hope, they can keep this patient alive one day beyond six months, even if they throw everything medical science has to offer, then the person is deemed to be terminally ill. If a person is in that situation and the doctors go to daughter or wife or husband and say, I'm sorry, but you know, your loved one is now terminally ill. And um, they say, we, we need to hook them up to a heart-lung machine or something like that. And the child, whoever the person is with the medical power says, no, um, mom wouldn't want that at all. And they can say, well, that piece of paper is no longer any good. Does your mother, father, grandfather, grandfather do they have a directive to physician? When you have a directive to physician and they don't have it, and this is a key point, if they don't have the directive but they know the person has signed one, then they can't let that person go on their own. So if you have someone who's in the hospital, they're in a really bad state, and um, 
family member gets up, goes home, take a shower, get something to eat. The minute they get in the car and drive away, there's a crisis in the room. Uh, someone walks in, uh, empty trash cans or whatever, and they see the person on the floor or they see them in a, a dazed state or a code blue, they would, they would call it. They don't do anything. So if, if, they, if they know that if they've got the power, if they've got your advanced directive, or if, if you have signed a DNR, then that's just that's a free license for the hospital. They don't have to do anything other than come in, find a person in distress with no uh, obvious heart rhythm, breathing, and they're done. So with a directive, at least you know that someone in your family that you've picked is going to hold on to that and is going to come. Maybe they want the family to gather. Maybe there's a big event coming up. Whatever it is that they want the family to come before they let them go. If you have a DNR, it's over. And it's, it's, we've been through that with several of our parents here, and it's sometimes a lot more difficult to enforce than it is to talk about it. But that's the difference between a DNR and a directive. An advanced directive that you would have your attorney prepare is one that keeps the family in control. As long as you're holding that piece of paper and they don't have it, they can't let them go. So, uh, The other documents, financial power, medical power, the privacy notice, which is causing the hospital so much anguish and expense. Uh, you sign that, you just put the names of people on there that can call in and see how you're doing in the hospital. If you're not on that list, they won't talk to you. So that's, that's a privacy a document. The, uh, the newest one on, in the group is called a disposition of last remains, an agent to provide disposition of last remains. I've gotten two calls in the last six months. Um, hello, this is Widow. We're here at the Forest Park Cemetery. The guests are lining up for the visitation. There's this very nice gentleman who says he's the head of consumer relations for the cemetery who's told us that my husband came in here two weeks ago and picked out this elaborate thing where he wanted his, his ashes to be put in. It was $1,000. He forgot his checkbook. So guess what? You guys are not going in there until someone comes over here with a piece of paper that says they have the authority for us to get, get Jim gone. I mean, it, it defies your imagination. I said, this is consumer relation guy? Yeah, well. So uh, the new document says, these are the people I appoint in this order. Uh, spouse, child one, child two, child three, nephew, whatever. And if someone is asking for that kind of a document, wife or husband hands it to them. It says she has the right to sign. She signs, pays $1,000, and they go on down the road. But it's amazing how many times that's come up, and, and that's a relatively new document, just a few years old. There's a guardian of your uh, person and of your, of your estate that's only effective if someone files for a guardianship for you. Could be next door neighbor, could be a, a well-meaning friend, it could be uh, a government agency, could be a hospital. Uh, any number of, of people have legal standing to open up a guardianship proceeding. All it does is get you in front of the court, they appoint people to represent and examine you and so forth, and the guardianship proceeding goes on its way. But if they say that John needs a guardian for his money, or a guardian for his person, then they've got to go and they've got to name the people that I've named on that piece of paper. They can't take someone off their short list at the court and name them, even though they might do a good job. All right, so those are the documents you're going to have along with a will or a living trust, depending upon what kind of plan you have. Now, I, I've already kind of admonished you on the, 
on the titling of assets, whether you have a will, whether you have a trust, all of your assets need to be styled appropriately. In most instances, if it's, if it's husband and wife, just typical old joint accounts, one set of kids, and so forth, then it would be, both of their names would be on there. But not with rights of survivorship. You do not want that, strike that from your vocabulary. There are very, very few instances where that's the appropriate way to go. Why do you have this will? Why do you have this living trust? If every time you sign a card in the bank, you're voiding it. You're saying, well, my will's gonna take care of this, but not this, and this, but not that. And next thing you know, most of it is that way, and nothing's left to go through the will. Um, you're fighting an uphill battle when you do that because financial institutions, many of, many of which, they wanna keep things simple. They think they're doing the right thing for a client to make sure that, that if a husband uh, uh, gets killed, that his wife can access the funds right away. And there's nothing wrong with that for maybe one account that you have just a month or two worth of assets in there. But it shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a part of, of any estate plan unless there's very extenuating circumstances. And it's, it's a very, very small percentage of people that really can, can get by with just those kind of accounts. It's not a, not a norm. And to make sure all of your uh, life insurance, IRA, retirement benefits, that those are all set up. Has any, anyone here ever gone to change your beneficiary designation at work? Anyone that has younger kids? And they say, okay, who do you want to be your primary? Well, wife or husband, whoever it is. But did they ask you who do you want to be your sec the secondary, the contingents? But what do you, and if you told them that you wanted to be your children, equal shares, do they ask you how old they are? Okay, good. You got a good job. Anyone that didn't ask that? If you have something that says to your kids and you go down in a plane crash on a, on a trip together and one of your children is deceased and you've got uh, minor grandchildren or if uh, your children aren't living and everything goes to the grandkids, then if they're under, under age 18, it gets paid into the registry of the court. And there's a court-created trust for those minor children that sits there in an investment account that's four to $6,000 a year to file accountings for. Until the child reaches 18, then they write them a check. Could be 100,000, could be 100 million, but that's what happens. So making sure that these contingent beneficiaries are, are good and, and they're updated if they need be is really important in, in most estate plans. Estate plans become a problem when, when the unexpected occurs, which is 90% of the time. So you want to be thinking about the unexpected. Who's the backup after that person? Because that's the one I'm really most concerned about, to see what happens when it gets down to there. Um, I probably should move along a little faster here. I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm wasting your time. Um, the, as far as, as trusts for surviving spouse, that's one level. Trust for children is another. Trust for grandchildren is another. Your will or your trust has all these multiple generation trusts built into the same document so that you don't have to worry about having specific provision for grandkids over here, provision for kids over here. They can all be together. The surviving spouse would have a trust as well. But in, in very, very short discussion, which is too short, but 
trusts do probably three main things for the beneficiary, whether it's a spouse, a child, a grandchild, great-grandchild, parent, sibling, nieces and nephews, doesn't matter. When then the assets pass to that person's trust, then that particular person, the beneficiary of that trust, and there really aren't, at least I haven't drawn one in 30 years, there aren't trusts that have a whole bunch of beneficiaries. If you've got four kids, and they're not going to be the same. And if they're young, each one of them has old tight-fisted Uncle Fred as trustee until they're 35, let's say. But one's going to go to college, the other one's going to go to trade school, one's going to be a bum, one's going to want to be a gambler. Uh, so they're all different, the trustee has to sort that out, but they don't, they're not mixed in together. So if, if you have documents that say, in the event we die, throw it all into this big old trust until our youngest child's 35. You don't want that. Everyone deserves their own separate trust, and they don't deserve to know what their brother's getting or their sister's getting. It's what they're getting is the only thing that's important about it. So when you, when you have these benefits to spouse, kids, grandkids, they're protection from creditors, they're protection in the event of a divorce, and they're not in that person's estate when they die. Well, with the estate tax exemptions of $11 million, how many people are going to have a real problem with estate taxes anymore? Very few. But one of them over here has a very small estate and just came out of a really nasty divorce, and his ex is standing right there with a judgment lien against him for $250,000. So what does he need a trust for? He needs a trust to make sure that money doesn't get attached by that creditor. Or one is in a, a common law type relationship, not married, and they inherit a bunch of money that's not protected. It's just theirs. So if they don't do a good job of safeguarding it, have a prenuptial agreement and so forth, then there's no protection for that person. So the trust can be set up to go down the generational line up to 100 years without ever coming back into the estate tax system or into the hands of creditors. It, it's simple to do. Most people that have uh, any amount of substance to pass on to their kids or grandkids, sometimes it's just a couple of hundred thousand dollars. But to that person uh, who's you know, in a young family, maybe is not in a good marriage or maybe isn't married and, and the parents don't like who they're running around with, um, having a trust, even if the person who's a beneficiary is a young trustee. Because they have to think twice. Why did mom and dad put this money in here? Well, they're going to get a good dose of it from their attorney, from the estate's attorney, of all the good reasons to have this in there. And, and if I have that conversation with a beneficiary, I always strike something that relates to them <laughs> where they really don't want this person getting that money from them, whatever it is. So when you have trust, it can be for the spouse, it can be for kids, grandkids, it can be for parents, it can be for siblings, clients that are single, don't have any kids. Lots of times they want to set up a trust for their, for their brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews later on. There are lots of different kinds of trust. When a client says, I've got a trust under that, I've got a trust in place under my will, that means as much to me as saying, I've got a vehicle with four wheels. I mean, it doesn't tell me anything. You can, have, you can have different kinds of trusts, life insurance trusts, gift trusts, uh, charitable trusts, court-appointed minor trusts, 867 trusts that I talked about that the courts appoint, special needs trusts so that people don't get, lose their governmental benefits if they inherit money, those sorts of things. But, but the, whole, uh, the whole discussion of trusts and what they're for, I'm just going to 
kind of leave it at that. <coughs> Pardon me. Except to say that the, the what about Uncle Sam, item number six? The exemption has gone from $600,000 in 1999, which doesn't sound like all that long ago to me, to $5.5 million in 2017. It's tied into a cost of living index. It's been going up since 2013. Started off at, at $5 million, now it's gone up to $5,490,000. That's the maximum amount that any person can leave to other people, either by death or during their lifetime, without paying a 40% transfer tax. It's a transfer tax system. Give it away now, reduce what you can give away later. The only main exception there that we run into, the most, is the annual exclusion gift, where you can give anyone you want $14,000 a year, and you don't have to report it, which means you don't have to use up any of your $5.5 million exemption. So, but besides those, if you understand that, you understand the transfer tax system, they, you can give it away while you're living, you can give it away when you die, but they both work against each other. The big change, though, that came about in 2013 was that until 2013, let's say the exemption was $3 million and a, and a, a couple had $7 million. So husband dies, he has a $3 million exemption. Up until three years ago, if that husband did not create a trust for his spouse, and he lost his $3 million. It was gone. So if, if the government came in and lowered the $3 million to $1 million, then he lost his three. The government came in and reduced the three to one, and now the wife has $7 million estate, and she only has $1 million to cover it. Everything else is now taxed at 40%. It used to be 55% up until 2013, and went down. So now clients can do a lot more because for many people sitting in this room, your marginal income tax bracket is close to 40%. You figure in all of your taxes, including any tax you paid in a year. So now we've got an estate tax that's gone from 55 to 40. We've got an income tax that's gone from 20 to 40, or 38%. So what's the most important thing to plan for now? Is it estate taxes or is it income taxes? That's, that's the big both. Good. That, that's, the big, that's the big deal right now, because that's the major change of 2013. Because of this, remember what I said about community property before? That it's like you both own it together, 50-50 from the start. So what happens if you were in Pennsylvania and Mr. Hart's surgeon, uh, MD, has got $10 million estate, his wife's got a $2 million estate, and the wife dies first? Simple, it's a separate property estate, she only has two million, therefore two million goes through her estate. He died first, his 10 million would, but her two million wouldn't. In Texas, it's 10 million owned by two people together. So if either one of them dies, everything that they own gets a new income tax basis. This is probably the second thing I want you to remember. Because a lot of times, elderly people, grandparents, I just got a call this morning from a client, oh, mom gave me the ranch last year, I'm saying, Whoopee. How long did she have it? Well, she inherited it three generations ago. There's parking lots all around it, and there's a Walmart right down the street, and you know, it used to be a cornfield. <coughs> I said, oh, it probably is pretty valuable. Oh, yeah. But we got it out of her estate. I said, well, great. 
who, who told you to do that? Well, our accountant did. He said, we want to, that's what we wanted to do. So, well, um, her basis in that, when she inherited it from her great-granddad, was $1,000. What's it worth now? Oh, about $5 million. Okay, well, when a person dies holding on to property, everything they own, everything their spouse owns as community property, gets a new income tax basis. If it's worth 10,000 an acre and it was worth 100 back then, it's not worth 10,000 an acre, but the basis is 10,000 an acre. So if the survivor says, I never did like that property, you know, he just wanted to go out there and shoot rabbits and stuff on it, I want to sell it. I want to go live the good life. But then she can take the whole thing, sell it, and pay zero income tax. So the new law allows people to basically say, we don't think we need a trust. We've got one set of kids. We're on good terms now. Um, and we, we're concerned about the income tax stuff because we have some of that stuff. You know, used to be all cornfields, now it's all condominiums. So what happens is many plans now are what I would call a hybrid document. They say, when I die, leave it all to my wife. And then she has nine months to sort it out. It's her problem. <laughs> so she can sit down and talk to you. She can talk to the accountant. She can talk to the financial person. Anybody talk to her minister. Anybody she wants to talk to. She has up to nine months to decide if she wants a trust or not. And if she decides, I, I want a trust for part of that because um, my husband and I talked about this. We both decided if we lost one of us, the other one was supposed to have another partner. That's okay with us. So I want to know that if I go have another partner, I'm not getting phone calls every afternoon from my kids. Drove by your house yesterday, saw that new pickup truck back there. You know, you don't like pickups. Um, how are you spending dad's money? You know, <laughs> I've had clients that have opted to set up a trust like that just to have that kind of peace of mind in the family. Um, others, it might be something different, might be a different set of children, or husband has one place he wants his money to go, wife another, and they don't agree on it. But the long story short is, it's, it's using a federal disclaimer for nine months. It's been around since the 20s. So the surviving spouse can decide which assets she might want to disclaim and go into husband's trust, which one she wants to come to her, uh, a dollar amount, anything she wants. But she can, she can do that with up to $5.49 million out of his estate and have it in that protective trust that's not going to be in her estate when she dies later. But if it's not in her estate for her estate tax purposes, it means it's not going to get a step up in basis. So when you're dealing with that kind of sophisticated thought, when you're dealing with an estate plan, I would say that 80% of that kind of planning that we're doing now is strictly based on income taxes as opposed to estate taxes. So what happens if, you, uh, if your husband or wife has a $5.5 million exemption? They have $2 million of assets. Well, it would, it would sort of sound like that they should only be getting $2 million worth of exemption. Not so. If the person who dies first has two million and the exemption's five and a half million, and the surviving spouse says, you know, I don't really need the trust. You know, I'm 75 years old, I'm not gonna get married again. Um, if I do, have someone shoot me. But, <laughs> but uh, husband had two, he left everything to his wife, she decided she didn't need a trust, so what happens? Well, new law says, wife files an estate tax return for her husband, or more appropriately the, the law firm does, and the estate tax return preserves all of the exemption that husband didn't use. Didn't have five and a half million, 
but now wife, if she decides to remarry, she can find a big old target because she's got three and a half million dollars of extra exemption in her back pocket. So she gets what the government gives her later, and she also gets to pick up her husband's three and a half million, even though he didn't even have the money. It, it doesn't sound, only things like that only come from Washington. But, but that's the law now. So uh, those of you who might have people in the family too that have sizable estates, that's really where all the action is. And it allows people to, to tr not try to have to figure out what the government's gonna be doing in 20 years. You don't really care because you have a person who can either take it all, take part of it, take none of it, and there's no penalty for that. That's called, uh, all, everything has to have an acronym, that's called DSUI. And it means the unused amount of the exemption that the first person didn't use by way of a trust. So those are the big things about uh, trusts for tax planning purposes, that you, the idea that you don't get an increase in basis if the assets are not in your estate. So if they're in a trust for you, it doesn't get a step up. But the basis stays the same when the first spouse dies before it goes on on the second death. Um, and the income tax that goes along with it. Trusts are, these kind of trusts are irrevocable when a person dies, not while they're living, but when they die. And when you have an irrevocable trust, now it starts filing a tax return. These, uh, these management trusts, these living trusts, don't file tax returns. You don't even know that there's one out there when you file your 1040. But when there's a death, if anything goes into a trust for a survivor or a trust for a kids, those go under the fiduciary income tax um, uh, rules, not the 1040 rules. So they have their own tax brackets, their own deductions. They get to a max tax of 39% very quickly, like $13,000 a year, and they're, they're at the ceiling. So these trusts, if they're set up for a good reason, they require some attending every year before the beneficiaries file their tax returns because they have the choice of either taking income out, having it taxed on their 1040, leaving it in, having it taxed at the trust rate, or a little bit of each. They have up to 65 days after the end of the year to make that decision for their trust from the prior year. It's not something you keep track of monthly, but you get to the end of the year, January, talking to your CPA, go, oh, well, we got $75,000 of income in my trust over here, and that's gonna put the trust in a 40% bracket. I'm in a 22% bracket. So I definitely wanna move that income out over here, pay a lower tax on it, but too bad, it's in February, but the government gives you 65 days after the end of the year to go back and change it around. So the only time you, because clients ask me all the time, I don't wanna trust my kids because it takes too much time and effort and CPAs are involved, tax returns, blah, 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 blah. One trip to the CPA a year and that's it. And the trade-off for that is protection from creditors, divorce, and so on and so forth. Okay, um, I'm gonna sum up here real quick and take your questions. The, well, I talked about how important it is to have a regular review of your plan, whatever it is. Uh, the incapacity is an issue that comes on more in old age, older age, I should say, older, uh, senior citizen, because there's a lot more to see in the rearview mirror than out the windshield as far as life goes on. When, when a couple, when one person in a couple gets, becomes incapacitated, it's pretty much game, set, match. It's over. You can't change anything. The courts do not allow a person to do an estate plan for somebody who can't. You can't say, I've got this power of attorney. I'm gonna go do a good old tax plan here for my husband 
who has Alzheimer's. You're, you're pretty much finished. There are things you can do to nip around the edge, but if those people can't, they don't have capacity, they can't change your plan. So um, a, li a living trust and this optional type disclaimer plan really puts the other person in charge, lets them do a lot more than they could with the will. Um, okay. There, one thing, someone asked a question about the state bar. There's a, uh, State Bar of Texas has its own website, of course, and there's a, a public view part and a, a lawyer view part, member part. And if you want to find people who are qualified in whatever area of the law you're looking in, you can go right in there. You can put your county in, your zip code or whatever. You can pick the specialty you're looking for, click on it, push a button, and it'll give you, you know, 10 pictures and names and so forth of people in, in your part of town that, that specialize in that field. They also have... Uh, They've done something that I think is going to be a horrible idea. Most law firms that do any kind of transactional work, lawsuits, business transactions, uh, SEC filings, big deals where they have hundreds, thousands of dollars of fees, <clears throat> they all have a trust account. State Bar of Texas says, you write a check, a retainer check to your lawyer, it has to go into that trust account. And it sits somewhere and doesn't, and it produces some kind of income. I shouldn't say no income, but not much right now. All the income from those accounts, for every lawyer that practices in the state of Texas, every dime of income goes for indigent legal support. That's where it goes. So the state bar is of the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in these trust accounts. Anything that those accounts earn goes for indigent legal care. There, there's a legal aid society in every single county. They have a sliding scale from zero to whatever, depending upon the person's ability to pay. So the state uh, of Texas decides that's not enough. So they, they have edicted that there be a set of forms put on the State Bar website that anyone can go on there and click on. And I would challenge any of you, if you don't have anything to watch, put the baseball game later, uh, try to go on the State Bar website and find it. The things you're reading are incredibly difficult to understand. Uh, things that sound simple, like transfer on death deeds, where a little widow lady can sign one of these deeds and, and avoid probate and everything else. There's more written about all the things that go wrong with that than here's about any other topic in the law. But the state bar and the, and the legislature have decided, by gosh, you're going to have those forms. Anybody that wants to go play, play lawyer can do that. So I don't know where that's all going to lead, but it's going to be interesting to watch because it's going to be a mess. Uh, one other thing, I'll just, I've kind of talked about this already. When you're looking for an estate planning attorney, that's a good place to start. You can, um, of those people who are board certified in the field, some do litigation, some do el elder law, they call it, which is really Medi Medicaid, Medicare work. Um, some do uh, guardianship proceedings and some do planning. But it, I would suggest that you, you try to stick with someone who's board certified and who has a little bit of, a little bit of time and grade. Uh, part of what our field does is stuff you learn and part of stuff you learn that you don't get out of a book. So it's important though to, to select someone that's, that's in that field if you need another area the same way you can get it through the state bar uh, and those little pop-ups on who does what. Talk to your friends, get referrals from them, people they've, they've enjoyed doing business with. The, the, thing about, the thing about the cost of the work is I just spent $2,100 on my truck <coughs> which is why it's still 10 years old, I'm driving it. But anyway, uh, all it got me was no leak underneath the 
<laughs> the engine in my carport, but it was $2,100. Well, it's hard to say what, what work costs when it comes to doing a will or trust. Uh, it could be a couple thousand dollars, it could be half that for a single person, it could be twice that to do you know, uh, tax planning work for someone. But when you're, when you're getting the job done with people who know what they're doing, you're getting something that's gonna be of value to your, to your family. So uh, I, when I had to have my shoulder surgery, I didn't go say, who's got the cheapest knife in town? I said, yeah, who's, <laughs> who's really going to do a good job on me? <laughs> I'm going to st stop with that and, and uh, see if you have any questions. Just, just pass them this way, and I'll pick them up. Hand him these to get started, and if some of you are writing, uh, I'll be ready to take them when you when you got them. Uh, the, the durable power of attorney question. Uh, what I was just talking about is these documents are six documents. You could pay three or four hundred dollars total for someone to do them right. There's no reason to mess around with them. I wouldn't use anything the state bar has on its website. And if you're concerned about uh, current power of attorney, I'd go get one that has the new agency stuff in it because that's as far as you can go with financial institutions now to get them to take it. There's no, there's no magic bullet that you can make them take it, but that's the best thing you can do. Uh, th these, these transfer on death deeds, I, I don't even want to talk about them. I would never have one. Why not? It would take me about half an hour to tell you why not. You can't. Sh well, that's the purpose of a, of a will or a trust is to transfer your assets. No, 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 no. Don't, don't look at them. They're, they're, they're bad, 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 bad. You, you do not want to transfer. They call them ladybird deeds and things. Absolutely not. Nope. Nope, you, you don't. You're, you're just, you're really, it, it's a big mistake. You're messing up your plan to do that. Um, Life insurance for young children. Uh, insurance folks are kind of around when people graduate from uh, college, when they go into service. There's always someone there to sell you an insurance policy. There's nothing wrong with the ones for kids if you're looking at it as um, a way to set up a savings account for the children. There are probably better ways to do it. You're not paying any commission to have it in a brokerage account. Um, I personally would, would not, unless you're saying, we really can't afford to pay for a child's services and internment, and we want a life insurance policy there. It's dirt cheap to do that. A lot of people buy those. I have so many clients who come in, and they're 70 years old, and they go, oh, I got this policy here that mom and dad bought on me when I was six months old. It's worth $100. You know? um, <laughs> so if you, if you buy it for that reason, and that's okay. It's, it's cheap money. Uh, if, so, if I have a young client in their 20s or 30s and they say, I need to buy some life insurance, I'll say, just figure out how much you can afford in your budget to buy a term policy and buy it. So buy a half a million. It's only $45 a month, $50 a month. 
uh, and the same would hold true for uh, one for a minor child if you if you wanted, just basically for burial expenses more than anything else. And I don't have a problem with that. I wouldn't do it as a long-term investment. Uh, I, I, there's just a, a lot of reasons that it, you, most of you don't want to hear about. But, uh, anybody else? Well, I appreciate the chance to come and visit with you. Thank you. This concludes uh, our uh, five nights together. Again, I thank you for coming. Thank you, John, for being with us, and, uh, and Jim and, and uh, Martha for uh, helping put this together. Uh, I, I would like to have about 20 minutes now to talk to you and explain what's going on in the baseball game, or would you rather go sit yourself? <laughs> okay. Uh, Andy, would you pray us out? <laughs>